Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were headed to Nazareth, but we're going to make a slight detour before visiting Nazareth. Today, we're headed to another very special city that's about three miles from Nazareth. It's Sepphoris. I also won't be your main tour guide today because we're going to be joined by Dr. Eric Myers, an expert in Sepphoris. Dr. Myers is an archaeologist and biblical scholar who, after graduating from Dartmouth in 1962, received his Ph.D. from Harvard in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures specializing in Bible, Jewish history, and archaeology. Serving as professor at Duke University since 1979, Dr. Myers is presently Bernice and Morton Lerner Emeritus Professor of Judaic Studies and Archaeology. He's authored or edited dozens of books, written hundreds of papers, and is active in many societies. He has directed many digs in Israel over the past 40 years and is especially knowledgeable about the site we're visiting today Sepphoris. I'm so excited to have Dr. Myers as our primary tour guide today. So let's hop off the bus and meet him. Hello, Dr. Myers. Welcome. And thank you for joining us today here in Sepphoris. Good morning from Israel via North Carolina. <laughs> so to start, as we're here outside of Sepphoris, orient us to the history of the city. When was it established? How did it come to be such a significant city? Well, believe it or not, I would attribute its fame to Herod the Great. Most people don't know the story, even though it was settled in the late Iron Age, 7th, 6th century before the Common Era, and also significantly during the Persian period, and we have very interesting artifacts from the Persian era, it's really in the 60s before the Common Era when Herod the Great, uh, at that time, um, before he has assumed the kingship of, of the Judean kingdom, um, conquered Sepphoris on a snowy day. And after which time, Sepphoris became one of the um, administrative districts of the Roman armies in the Middle East with the capital in Damascus. So from the middle of the first century, we could say before the common era, Sepphoris has uh, entered the arena of history as an important uh, urban destination for the, the Roman occupiers of the Middle East. Its Judaic content um, probably dates uh, a little earlier than that because the Galilee was significantly uh, changed by Aristobulus I at the beginning of the, uh, around 100 BCE, when he uh, conquered the area and the Hasmoneans uh, turned to forced conversion of the local population to Judaism. So to all intents and purposes, Sepphoris was Jewish by uh, the late Hellenistic period or from 100 down and onwards. 
So that's how Jewish culture got a start at Sepphoris, basically. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So we've only talked briefly about Sepphoris here on the virtual voyage, and I mentioned that some consider it to be the jewel of Galilee. So can you explain its significance and then why some scholars might refer to it as that? Do you refer to it as that? Well, actually, the translation in the Loeb translation of Josephus, Josephus himself, the historian of the first century, calls it the ornament of all Gal Galilee. So, or I suppose you could say jewel as well, but we use his term ornament. And um, this real story of Sepphoris is how it's transformed from a town of some importance in the first century BCE to an urban center under one of the sons of Herod the Great, Antipas, who on Herod's death in 4 BCE uh, assumes leadership and the uh, tetrarchy in the Galilee. And he decides to move the capital of the Galilee to Sepphoris at the turn of the era and uh, in the time of Jesus. And that's one of the reasons it gets such a big uh, interest from the New Testament and early Christian early Christianity scholars, because it's there so close to Nazareth when Jesus is growing up in his childhood and early years that Sepphoris is transformed into a royal city of Herod Antipas with the retinue and buildings and all the rest. What we found in excavation uh, on the Western summit was in addition to some public structures which don't survive particularly well from Antipas's era, a series of very elegant houses similar to the elegant houses in Jerusalem, which survive and we've uncovered in them over 30 mikvaot or ritual baths that tell us that Torah law, Bible laws from Leviticus were being observed pretty strictly already in the first century CE in the time of Jesus. Well, we're here discussing Sepphoris. We're actually here at Sepphoris with Dr. Eric Myers here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. So if we just look a little that way, I think we can kind of see maybe a little bit of Nazareth just sticking up. So it's only really a few miles from Nazareth, and that's where Jesus is believed to have grown up. So can you contrast Nazareth to Sepphoris? How were the cities different? How were they similar? They're obviously so close. Is there any similarity between them? Nazareth in the time of Jesus is certainly a small town or village even. It probably had a couple of hundred res residents, maybe 250, 300, which would be the average size of a settlement in, in that period. The population in Sepphoris is growing once the royal family settles there, Antipas and his retinue. Uh, and as it gets renovated and rebuilt into an urban center, it probably reaches six, eight, ten thousand 10,000 within no time. So that's a huge, huge difference between a satellite village and urban center where the archives are stored and where the royal family lives. And um, you can imagine the contrast is huge. Nazareth certainly partook of the 
economic explosion that we associate with the building of Sepphoris into the ornament of all Galilee, uh, from its transformation into a, you know, a small town, much, much larger, by the way, than Nazareth would have been already because of its first century occupation. But its transformation is so significant that the people of Nazareth, I'm sure, participated in um, providing uh, food and supplies and partaking in participating in the rebuilding project it's, itself as carpenters, stonemasons, and, and the like. One of the reasons that it's not mentioned in the New Testament, however, is that Jesus had a, as a, as a teacher and as a grown man preaching in his ministry in the Galilee, was kicked out of the synagogue on a certain Sabbath. It's mentioned in all the synoptics and all uh, and the Gospel of John. And while many people have argued this and that for his theological exclusion from Na Nazareth, I believe it, it's, it's the simple fact that he was not happy with the villages for supporting what was going on with the royal family. Jesus' message was intended for the poor, the disenfranchised. Uh, he's not a city guy that we know of, but really is preaching to the, to the masses there in the small villages uh, of Galilee. So, and, and the royal family was associated by the latter part of his ministry in Galilee with the, with the murder of uh, John the Baptist, and that certainly must have meant that Jesus was at odds with the people in his hometown village. So this, he wouldn't have celebrated uh, Passover in in uh, Sepphoris, I'm sure. He was very uncomfortable with the fact that the villagers were so excited about what was happening nearby for its economic impact on the region. So as Jesus was growing up, obviously in the Gospels, we kind of miss out on maybe his teenage years and his, his years of life as a young man where he was working perhaps as a carpenter or stonemason. <laughs> Even though it's not in the Bible, is it likely maybe based on evidence that Jesus was at Sepphoris working? Because you said Sepphoris has thousands of people versus Nazareth just having a few hundred. So there's going to be more, uh, more economic opportunity at Sepphoris. We we cannot say with certainty that he worked at Sepphoris, but I, I can't imagine that he was not a regular visitor to the site during his childhood years and teenage years. You could get there on a donkey probably in 40, 45 minutes. It's three, four miles as the crow flies. So it's, you know, on terrestrial land, it's m much longer. So it would have taken him by horse or mule, probably 40, 50 minutes uh, to get there, uh, or by wagon cart, something like that. And uh, watched the, his members of the family um, or friends of the family working as carpenters or stonemasons or tilling the fields over there in Sepphoris as well, where they would have grown um, um, crops because they, had, they, they were in great need at this time for supplying the royal family with high standard of living.
So there's something I want to show everyone here. Let's walk over to this Villa of Dionysus. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but you can correct me. Um, I believe that inside we're going to find something. It's called a, a, or it's a mosaic, and it's dubbed the Mona Lisa of Galilee. And it's interesting because there are two ends to the hall, one with a beautiful woman and one with a not-so-beautiful woman. And so can you tell us a little bit about this mosaic as we're standing here and looking at it and, and its discovery? Well, this was certainly a surprise, and it put Sephiroth on the map early on. We rediscovered it in 1987, um, and it was thrilling, exciting, and all, all the rest. And within a year, we were also certain of the date. And that date was the first third of the third century CE, AD, you know, 200 years after um, Jesus. But the, much of the scholarship in, in New Testament and early Christianity wanted, wanted to associate this elegant cosmopolitan building and mosaic with the life of Jesus. And there ensued in the late 80s and right into the middle of the 90s, a debate over what the Galilee was life like in the time of Jesus. And um, I, I would say that um, once it was clear that all the beautiful mosaics at Sepphoris were third century and later, right into the middle of the Byzantine period, like the synagogue, sixth century CE, that the urbanization of the Romans in the area only took place a century later, 200 years after Jesus. And that Galilee in the time of Jesus and Jesus's focus on towns and villages and hamlets was right on, spot on, because that's what the population was till Sepphoris was built. And then after 20, 30 years later, Tiberius was um, enhanced by Antipas as well, and figured very much into the great revolt against Rome in 66 to 70. So maybe I'm not approaching this correctly, but as I stand here and look at this beautiful mosaic, it seems odd to find a Jewish city with a mosaic like this on the floor with, with a beautiful woman. Uh, what does this mosaic tell us about the culture of Sepphoris, if it tells us anything? <laughs> I think one of the most interesting and important facets of understanding Sepphoris at this time is that given the fact that there were two revolts against Rome, the Great Revolt 66 to 70, 73 or 4, if you count Masada and the aftermath, and the Bar Kokhba revolt, the second revolt, 132 to 135 CE. Uh, the tensions between Roman overrule, overlordship, whatever they Jews considered it to be at the time, did not inhibit the adoption by the Jewish community of Greco-Roman culture. And they hungered for it, and they reveled in it. As a matter of fact, they ultimately saw in it the possibility to acculturate and become like the rest of the world, so to speak. So participating in the dominant Greco-Roman culture through visual art and mosaic art in particular, 
was one way that they participated fully in the world that enveloped them. That world exploded onto the Levant in, in the middle of the first century BCE and continued right through, you could say, till late antiquity, even to the Islamic period, when the Greco-Roman culture, Greek language, Greek civilization, uh, Greek norms um, enveloped the entire region, uh, whether it's east of the Jordan or west of the Jordan in Israel. And I see this as very, very positive. Adopting modern ways is the way most ethnic groups survive. And adopting without accepting paganism, Judaism and Christianity rejected paganism strongly and forcefully, but along the route, they were dressing like Romans. Their diet changed. They were um, hygienically performing the way the Romans did, built bathhouses identically to the way they existed in Italy and other places around the Mediterranean. So uh, a lot of people see this East-West as meeting up as a clash. But I see Hellenization, if we can use a global term, as one of the most positive things that ever happened to both Judaism and Christianity. And it enabled the people at Sepphoris to thrive, even despite two revolts. Sepphoris did not participate in the first revolt. It was the only city and town in the entire country that sat it out. And Nero honored the city fathers with a coin that called it City of Peace, Irenopolis. And that, that unique situation between the city, the town fathers, the municipality, Greek boule, uh, existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. So when we see a, a Greek mosaic with labels in Greek in the finest house on the western summit, which has got 30 ritual baths and, uh, and terracotta lamps with uh, Jewish symbols on them, I'm not surprised. And there's no reason why the patriarch Judah would not have lived there. Rabbi Judah, the patriarch, the prince, was the editor, redactor of the Mishnah, which was the first major Jewish publication to emanate out of Palestine, Israel, after the Bible. And it interprets the Bible. It enhances the juridical proceedings, the laws in the Bible, and is the foundation of the Talmud. Let me put it this way. The literary output that's coterminous with this mosaic and acculturative process, I think, shows that the symbiosis between Greco-Roman culture and Judaism was dynamic and produced a winner, if I could put it in the <laughs> colloquial. So along those same lines, let's head over to the synagogue at Sepphoris here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. And inside is something that has always fascinated me. So let's come take a look. So this mosaic on the floor isn't in perfect condition, but it appears to be a Hebrew zodiac. And then there are yep. many prominent symbols of Judaism, such as the binding of Isaac. 
um, and Aaron preparing an offering at the tabernacle. So does this mosaic also kind of illustrate that fundamental change uh, where Judaism is now accepting these other cultures? Yes, this is a continuation of the same theme that we have in the third century, only it's a couple of hundred years later. And it shows that the Jewish community now living peacefully, by the way, at Sepphoris, along with a pagan presence, a non-Jewish, non-Christian presence, alongside pagan temple and a number of Christian churches and bishops in residence in the sixth century, we have a dynamic multicultural center. And this mosaic shows Jews clinging deeply to their historical writings uh, and telling those stories visually and in pagan imagery, especially the Zodiac. We have five other synagogues from the same period and one, several of them earlier than the one at Sepphoris that used the Zodiac to underscore the importance of, of the Jewish tradition and how it can be reinterpreted um, in the context of literary and visual styles that are clearly not inherently Jewish. So that, that's, I think that's the story of Sepphoris, how it acculturated and used that dynamic um, process uh, to inspire enlightened living, really. I mean, look at the output. I mean, the Mishnah is, all, is six volumes in, in, you know, in small print and in large print, they're folio versions. This was not a minor undertaking. And there were other things published there under the auspices of the, what we call the Sanhedrin and the Beta Midrash, the learning centers of Judaism. It also had known bishops in the Christian tradition as well there. And if you walk, walk along the main cardo, you can see uh, some of these bishops uh, inscriptions commemorating their presence at the site. So Dr. Myers, in a chapter you wrote for the book, The First Jewish Revolt, you speak of Sepphoris, the Great Revolt, and the city's pro-Roman policy. It seems like we've seen some tangible reminders of that policy. So what exactly was the Great Revolt, and how did Sepphoris live out a pro-Roman policy? Well, the commander of the Galilean forces from 66 to 68 was none other than Flavius Josephus, the historian. And Josephus was very much supportive of opposing Rome's interference and inhibiting uh, the independence of the fledgling Jewish state and, and so accepted the challenge and was uh, the commander of, of the IDF, so to speak, in 66. There we two go. full years. Well, there, but then... He had a change of heart. Now, just think about little Israel, <laughs> the kingdom of, of Judea at this time, em embracing just a tiny slice of geography in the Middle East. And think of the Roman Empire that stretched from Italy through the Aegean world 
over into Turkey and parts of the Levant. I mean, there's no comparing little Israel, if I could call it that just for this sake of this conversation, and the Roman Empire. These were two different entities. Now, Israel fought a valiant fight, but there was no way that they were going to uh, win over the large, more uh, favored Roman armies. Well, somehow in the year 68, Flavius Josephus decided, you know, this was not a battle that he and his forces could win. And before he decided to bail from his uh, leadership position at a site just the stone's throw from Sepphoris at Jotapata, Yotfat in Hebrew, um, where they committed a act of mass suicide with allowing him to survive, by the way, he made a fateful approach to the uh, general, Roman general Vespasian at the time, later to become emperor, and said he would be willing to negotiate with the city of Sepphoris now um, for a... Um, peaceful solution to the situation. And indeed, the town fathers, we don't have the details of what happened, but the Boule, the municipality of Sepphoris, decided not to challenge the Roman armies in the Galilee and to, to um, not participate in the war any longer due to the interference and convincing stories of Josephus himself. And that allowed Nero to commemorate this event, a major turning point in the war, with a coin that labeled Sephra City of Peace in Greek, Irenopolis. That began a series of uh, overtures to the Roman um, emperors from Sephras, even in the time of Hadrian, when a pagan temple is erected in the lower city. And under the leadership of Rabbi Judah the Prince, when the Mishnah was codified there, the Roman Empire, Roman Emperor Caracalla issues a commemorative coin or large issue celebrating the unique relationship of peace between the city and citizens of Sepphoris and the Roman Emperor. And we actually found in our controlled excavations one of, the, one of a, a very poorly preserved um, version of that commemorative coin. So as we walk back outside and finish our wonderful day at Sepphoris here, I'd like to turn to one of your specialties with regard to the city, which is pottery. You were just alluding to that. I know you've <laughs> completed multiple digs here with Duke University, and one of your books on Sepphoris was entitled The Pottery from Ancient Sepphoris. So some people might be wondering, why would one want to spend their days trying to piece together old jars and vessels? And so what kind of information can pottery give you, especially with respect to your discoveries here at Sepphoris? Well, the most ubiquitous find in all archaeological sites is pottery. And... Uh, Pottery allows us to do many, many things of, of importance. First and foremost, 
for the earlier periods and even into the Roman and Byzantine periods, it allows us to have a handle on chronology. Typological study of pottery goes back to W.F. Albright and uh, Sir Flinders Petrie, uh, 120, 100, you know, back to circa 1900, 120 years ago, maybe even a little earlier than that. So that's one way. It is the most useful tool for chronology. When used with coins, it can be used with great sophistication in the later periods, especially the Roman, Hellenistic Roman and Byzantine periods. They go hand in glove and we can refine the dating of pots through this combined um, strategy, which coins enhance. In addition, through provenient study of ceramics, we can tell where the where they're made and how they're traded. And one of the interesting um, things that we point out in the ceramics volume is where the lamps come from, where the pottery comes from, and, and it gives us an insight into the trading patterns of, of, of that time and period and how isolated or not isolated um, things were. Through provenient study, we found that Herodian period lamps were brought from Jerusalem to Sepphoris in the first century, apparently having sentimental value. They didn't want to have local copies. They wanted to have originals made in the holy city, like uh, <laughs> a tourist item or sold to a biased visitor to the holy city. So pottery is an essential tool. And one last way we can use it, if we can identify the shapes of the vessels that we find and place them in rooms, we can recreate what actually happened in those rooms. We could say what was a workspace, what was a place where they ate communal meals. We can, by the number of imported vessels or fine vessel, fineware vessels, we can say, what was the uh, economic level of, of that family unit? You know, was up class, priestly or something like that, or just a poor family like we might have found in Nazareth. So it's very, I mean, absolute essential tool for Near Eastern biblical archaeology. Well, Dr. Myers, thank you so much for taking the time to share Sepphoris and, and share pottery and share your expertise with us. We've learned so much about this fascinating city. So nice to be here talking with you from the Galilee. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventure and head to Nazareth.